This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Korberlein. Electric cars and solar panels on our houses are great ideas, but they can be made more practical with key upgrades to our electrical infrastructure. Dr. Eric Williams, Associate Professor of Sustainability at the Rochester Institute of Technology, talks to us today about Elon Musk's recent announcement of home battery banks and how our power system needs to change to accommodate solar and wind energy technology. A lot of people like to complain about our power grid, and part of it is because it's been around for so long. It's kind of the best power grid that the early 1900s can provide. What do you look at in terms of this? I mean, what is your area of interest related well, to Well, I, I guess I see that the main challenge is how to make it more sustainable from an environmental perspective while at the same time keeping the cost of energy to be reasonable okay. because it's, energy is such, plays such a fundamental role in the economy. And so, you know, if it's too expensive, this causes real problems. Right. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I don't know, carbon gets a lot of press these days, but then clearly that's important. But also there's energy security. Uh, there's all the traditional pollutants like sulfur and suits and these things. Right. And so really it's about trying to understand how to better manage those two right. factors, economics, environment, as we go move into the future. I know a lot of people kind of think of electricity as being the clean way of doing things. At least we're not burning fossil fuels. If we have an electric car, then everything will be solved. And that's not really the case, right? I mean, a lot of the power is made from things like coal and stuff like that. People do uh, analyses called uh, life cycle assessments or welt wheels, where they look at the total carbon mm-hmm. or other pollutants in order to drive a mile with a car. And it turns out that if you run a car off of coal-based electricity, you'll actually emit more carbon than if with a conventional gasoline car. So an electric vehicle is only as clean as the grid that you power it with. So, so the electric cars won't save us without an improvement in right. the power grid. Yes, absolutely. We have power generators, and then we have the power grid system. And if I understand it correctly, we have like three areas East, West, and Texas? Oh, we have, depends on how you divide it up, it can be more like 11 or so okay. grid regions. For example, Texas is its own grid, right? which is curious. When they divide the grids into those 11 regions, that has to do with the interconnection. I mean, those regions may have, there may be many utility companies within those regions, right? but in terms of being able to ship power between different areas, the idea is that they're more or less self-contained in terms of those. And different regions then have different levels of kind of non-carbon sources. Absolutely. So some will use more nuclear. Uh, we get a lot of hydropower from Niagara Falls. The Midwest, if I understand it, uses a lot of coal. Yes, that's, that's, that's yeah, their absolutely. primary thing. Yes, and uh, north uh, Northwest has a lot of hydropower. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it really depends on which region you're in in terms of the mix of technologies that are used to make the electricity and along with that, the environmental impacts uh, right. for the so, electricity. Like right now in, in, in the United States, about what percentage is done with coal and oil and carbon producing and what percentage would be hydro and nuclear? And I think we're 20% nuclear, okay. around 10% hydro, uh, 60 or 70% fossil, and that fossil is coal and gas primarily, right. and then the rest a bit of wind and other renewables. Okay, so... Which so is really the, the wind and solar is you know, less than 5% is, is my understanding. Okay, so about 60%, 70% is, is coal and natural gas. Yes. And those produce carbon. Yes, roughly to the extent. R- roughly that. to the extent. <laughs> right. I remember, but yes, it's big, a majority. In, in that range. So, yeah. so, you know, on, on a rough order, we're talking about three-fourths of it. Yes. So if we want to make more efficient 
power generation? I mean, is it just simply a matter of kind of replacing coal and gas with alternative energy? Is that the big challenge right now? Or is it the architecture of the power grid itself that's a problem? The architecture is relate, relates to your, the ability to bring more renewables onto the grid. But let's, you know, let's start with a well, the two main challenges to moving towards a renewable grid, say, based on primarily wind, solar, some geothermal, mm-hmm. uh, one is economics, and that even if you can use those sources perfectly well, there's still considerably more. Well, wind, if you have a good site, is, is reasonably cheap. Solar is still quite a bit more expensive than coal or natural gas, but an additional piece of that is the... Uh, variability in in wind power. And so the central challenge of the grid is that at any moment in time, you have a bunch of customers and say, look, I want X watts Mm -hmm. of power. And the utility has to deliver exactly that 24 hours a day. And well, the sun only shines during the day and the sun and the wind blows during different times. And unless you can store build up a bunch of extra renewable capacity and store it for later, then it's really tough to deliver, you know, say all or most of the grid electricity with the renewables. Right. And storage is really expensive, uh, batteries, uh, pumped hydro. And so there's the direct cost of a kilowatt hour by solar, but then depending on when you need it, there could be an additional cost to storage that could be much actually larger than the original cost to generate it. Right. And in some ways, it seems like it's contradictory because during the night is when you're going to want to use lights and stuff and use more electric power. That's when people are home, but that's not when it's being generated. It's being generated during the day when people are out of work. And that and that's also region dependent. So if you're living, right. if you're in a the southern climate where it's warmer, there's a huge ele- a peak uh, electricity demand towards 3 or 4 p.m., okay. which is actually m- corresponds pretty well to the solar peak. Mm-hmm. But then if you know, in Rochester, we don't use so much. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of, we complain, it's like, we <laughs> don't have sunlight yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> and wind, it really depends on, you know, so some, a lot of wind blows at night, but then in some places and other places, it may not have that same temporal pattern. Right. So. And when they become controversial because some people don't want the wind towers in their view space. I think it, it ruins Right, Cape Wind, which has been in perpetual. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I know we have them here in, in, in the kind of western New York area. And I know in the southern tier area, it's been somewhat controversial because some people like them and, and like to see them, and other people just hate it because mm-hmm. they want to see the tree line without, you know, these stupid wind towers there. Yeah, they not in my backyard factor is is also is, is a real is challenge also a problem. Too. even for solar right you know, apparently you know they're trying to get solar in the desert and then their environmentals unless we're concerned about it it's going to damage the desert we do that with nuclear you know everybody nuclear may be nice but nobody wants it next yeah to i think with nuclear it, the risks seem pretty reasonable to me yeah but on the other hand it's clear that the public opinion is so it doesn't matter how safe it, it is no one's going to buy that it, yeah. i don't work on nuclear i'm really trying to figure out whether the renewables uh, right. can work. So it sounds like we're, we're both blessed and cursed by the, the, the cheap efficiency of fossil fuels. They're, they're, they contain a lot of energy and they're easy to use. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're, you know, we have that legacy of the of the dinosaurs and the plants <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> from 300 million years ago that we're, that we're living off of. Uh, right. So in terms of the uh, architecture, we talk about this antiquated grid system and that, you know, it, it's been around for a long time. It's very mechanical based in which the switches and everything are still done by the mechanics. And I know there's been talk about something like a smart grid, mm. the idea of, of making it 
network intelligent or something? Is yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the the antiquity of the grid grid is over somewhat overstated. The stuff doesn't last hundreds of years, and so they do put in new substations and swap out the transformers and such forth. Right. It's not that old, but uh, at the same time, uh, there are an information technology with smart grid has uh, opens up all kinds of windows to better understand what we're using in order to better integrate renewables into the grid to let people sell power to the utilities and other mm-hmm. customers. And we haven't gone that far overall in terms of adopting these technologies. And I think a lot of it, well, the, uti- the way that we generally run utilities is it's a regulated monopoly. Mm-hmm. And so generally speaking, they don't have a whole lot of incentive to to change things. Regulated <laughs> monopoly and innovation are not two things that generally that, go that, hand in hand. Right, right. <laughs> By the way, I don't know if you've uh, the renewing the energy vision in New York State. Have you kept up? Have you? Heard? No, I haven't heard about that. Oh, that's New York State is the hotbed of utility revolution. Yeah. Because uh, the New York uh, Commission has said, you know, all right, utilities, you've had this guaranteed rate of return. This system, this era will end, and you will offer a new set of energy product because if they're going to provide solar power to you during the peak you must you provide must them yeah. you know you, you must be able to pay them a price that, that that's reflective of that value there's this a furor of activity to, to figure out what this is going to be and the utilities are freaking freaking out let's, let's <laughs> use the name <laughs> yeah they're freaking out basically uh, and they've had a pretty stable, simple situation to deal with right. uh, so it's very exciting time in New York and the world is as I understand, watching us to see how this is going to play out. But there's a lot of questions on how, how do we reorganize utilities so that the smart grid will be part of the business model that, that right. utilities run and, by. And having to meter both ways, it, having to, to address a surge of electricity that comes into the grid yeah, and having to manage that. All of a sudden it's sunny in some place and everybody's generating power. Yeah, and you yeah, the, the, somewhere. Germany is in real trouble apparently because they didn't really change their utility model at the same time, they subsidized the heck out of solar, and they guaranteed everybody to, to, to generate solar to get a good price for all the solar. And so now the utilities are getting all this solar, and they don't know what to do with it. They don't have any way to store it. <laughs> you know, and so it was at a conference last year uh, where the German utilities came, and they're saying, we don't it's just it's impending, it's a mess, we don't know what to do. So a uh, cautionary tale then. Yeah, I think there's, you know, it's not just putting in the solar, but it's having the system set up so that you can use it and that the utilities still have a business model that works. Right, so you have to make it cost effective and you have to make it efficient and you have to make it worth your while all at the same time while the thing still has to operate the whole time in which you're upgrading everything. Yes, yeah, so So it's 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 trying to fix a moving plane. Well, on the other hand, we're not, you know, it's not gonna be a, we're gonna switch all to solar one day, it's gonna be a very step by step. It's gonna be a very gradual you know, thing. And, and with utility, there's such long time scales with anything you do, because you, know, you, you build a coal plant and it's not something that lasts for five years, it's something that lasts for 20 or 30 or more. Right, it takes five yeah. years to build. Yeah, and so the cost of all these things were really, I mean, we built out this grid sort of assuming that all this stuff we're gonna be using it for quite a while. Right. And so you know, even rapid change is gonna be relatively not so (laughs) slow rapid change the race of the turtle as it were yeah now i know uh in the press recently um tesla's gotten a lot of press about their new home battery system and they've been making electric cars and now they're talking about having a a storage system for solar power or, or for powering your house is this 
as revolutionary as some would argue, or is this evolutionary? Well, it, it's definitely an achievement, but on the other hand, it's not near. I don't see it as nearly as revolutionary as some of the hyperbole in the press has has put okay. it. What they've offered, which is a it's a very competitive product. Well, one of the products is a residential system, ten kilowatts for thirty five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's two hundred and fifty dollars per kilowatt for a good lithium system. So, you know, this is substantial cost reduction. In, right. in in a lithium system. Usually they were like 20000 or something? I think it used to be t- 600 500 five or $600 a kilowatt. Okay. And I, I, mean, I haven't tracked the whole you know, evolution right. of the prices, but this is definitely a very, compared to the past, and a very reasonably priced system. At the current price point, how important that is kind of depends on what you want to use the batteries for. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you want to go off-grid in your home, if you want to go off-grid and right. you're thinking, what battery system do I buy? So up to now, the answer has been a lead-acid. Lead-acid batteries already already cost about $100 per watt, per kilowatt hour, excuse me, mm-hmm. $100 per kilowatt hour. And you might think, well, wait, this is $350 per kilowatt hour. Right. But it's what it is is that with a lithium battery, uh, you can get a much deeper discharge okay. with it. So with a lead-acid battery, you can't really run it below 50%. And so that means you have to buy more lead to battery. If you, if you plan to do a right. deep discharge, which if you're off-grid, you're going to do, right. you have to b- buy a much bigger lead battery system in order to meet your needs. Right. A lead battery is like a car battery. I've had an electric mower that has a lead acid battery. I have, I have one too. And they, these things are so incredibly heavy. And yep. then you look at the newer ones that have just the little lithium battery pack and it's so much easier to deal with. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no question lithium is a much better technology for power density and depth of discharge and lots of things. It's just that right. it's been relatively, it is still relatively expensive compared to lead. You know, let's say you want to do off-grid, then now that, that Tesla system is going to be cheaper for you to run than the lead battery system. So that's good. You know, on the other hand, if you're, let's say you're interested in backup power, you know, so the emergency backup right. power. You're only going to use it when the power when goes the power off comes because down, the grid goes then down. Then go lead acid. One, maybe one of the more important things about that system is it's indicating where we're going with lithium batteries. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at the price trends uh, over the last you know, 10, 20, you know, 10 or 20 years, you actually see very regular and rapid price reductions. Right. Uh, every doubling of cumulative production of lithium batteries, you reduce the cost by around 20%. If these trends continue and we continue building out and the Tesla is considering to build right. out these markets for the electric vehicles and the home storage, then that'll help us move down this cost reduction curve right. to a point where they're really, I mean, they're really attractive for all kinds of things, including electric vehicles and so on and so forth. You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Coverline. We've been talking with Dr. Eric Williams, Associate Professor of Sustainability at RIT, about upgrading our power grid. In our second half, Dr. Williams will ask me a few questions in a wide-ranging discussion about new discoveries in quantum physics. I heard that there was some really interesting things going on with the discovery of the Higgs boson. Right. And so maybe if you could summarize what's going on there. Well, the basic idea of the Higgs boson is within particle physics, we have this thing called the standard model. And what it does is it describes the type of particles we see, how they interact, you know, how many different types there are. But one of the questions was how do these particles, electrons, protons, quarks, all of this stuff, how do they get mass? Why do they have mass? Because it's a quantity that we measure, but we don't know you know, what would give them that. And so the idea of the Higgs boson is that there could be this field that 
penetrates you know everywhere and that when particles move through them they would interact with this field and that would give them inertia that would give them mass so so the analogy that's typically used is if you walk into a crowded room no one would notice and so you could walk through and you know go to the grocery store and get what you need and go home and you're just one particle among many because you know you're just another person whereas if president obama walked into the local wegmans everyone's going to flock around him and it's going to stop traffic and people are just going to be locked around this because the fame of obama would cause all these other surrounding things to clump around that and that would then impede the progress of obama walking through the grocery store or something the idea is the same in that the higgs field is just these interactions that you would have with everyday things but then when an electron comes in all the higgs goes whoa that's an electron and they all cluster around it and give the electron mass so that's kind of on a very basic level what the higgs boson is it's one of these things that's been theoretical since the 60s and was only recently discovered at the Large Hadron Collider. And so it's important because it, it confirms kind of one of these last aspects of the standard model. It was the one part of the standard model that, that we really thought should be there, uh, and then we just didn't have the experimental evidence for it. So now we do. What gets some people excited is that it may be a stepping stone towards something beyond the standard model, which is kind of the next step. If it's confirming the standard model, can you expand a bit on how that would sure. actually lead to beyond the standard model? Within the standard model, the, the Higgs field, there would be basically one type of boson. So the Higgs boson that we would see would be the only Higgs-type particle that we would, would see in, in the Large Hadron Collider. We don't know if that's the case or not yet. Right now, we know there is a Higgs-type particle. What we don't know is, is that the only one? And so one of the things that the LHC wants to do when their new run is going, uh, they're going to be at twice the energy as last time. And they're going to probe this. If there are other Higgs particles, like if we have three or five Higgs particles, then there's something structurally that doesn't match the standard model. And so it would be an evidence of something underpinning the standard model. And there's been a lot of ideas that have been proposed, but we haven't found the experimental evidence for it. Now that we can identify a Higgs particle, the question is, can we look for more? In terms of astrophysics, for example, one of the things that we're interested in is dark matter. Dark matter is not regular matter. It, it clearly has mass. We're pretty sure it exists but it doesn't interact strongly with light, and it can't be regular matter. So if these particles exist, they would be something beyond the standard model. So one of the things that we're kind of interested in is if, if the Higgs can find evidence of something beyond the standard model, that might help us figure out what the deal is with dark matter. So the Higgs, the dark matter, couldn't be the Higgs particles? There have been some ideas of the dark matter being the Higgs, but it doesn't seem to match up. What we know about dark matter doesn't seem to be consistent with the Higgs. Well, I guess the Higgs has mass charge. I mean, it has a massiness. Right. It has it, a massiness no, to it. But it doesn't interact with light. Right. Okay. Right. And so there have been some discussions about, well, could that be the right range? Right now, it's leaning away from that. There have been like very different 
ideas of what dark matter could be. Uh, the most popular ones are called weakly interactive massive particles, or WIMPs, mm. and those are kind of like the number one things that people are looking towards. But the thing is, we're dealing with a lack of evidence. We we don't mm. we haven't detected any dark matter particles directly, so all we have is the indirect evidence of their mass. And we've barely detected the Higgs. We know there are Higgs particles there, but we don't know, you know, other than its basic characteristics, is it unique? What's it, all of its physical properties are experimentally? That's still ongoing. So we're just so on So it sounds edge. like there's a potential now for the, the, the cosmological interest in dark matter to inform what kind of particles we might look for here on Earth. Right. Are you aware of some particular... You know, suggestions that connect the, the, the two? Some of the dark matter models have actually been eliminated by the Large Hadron Collider because one of the ideas is that if they were lighter dark matter particles, if, if the WIMPs were relatively light, then they should have appeared in the data of the LHC already. Right. And they haven't. So we haven't found any dark matter particles within particle physics. So that means we can exclude those really light particles out. They're not going to be there. So with this new run, again, people are wondering, you know, there's a range of possible dark matter particles that could be seen directly or, you know, see the evidence of directly from the collisions. That would be really exciting. The idea of the Higgs having multiple ones could help us point us in the right direction of which theory beyond the standard model there might be. With the evidence of dark matter, with some other things, it would look like there's something beyond the standard model. Is there a leading contender? I don't know that there's a leading contender. At mm. least uh, I'm not aware of one, but mm. particle physics isn't my field. So mm. in astrophysics, we want something for dark matter. We need a dark matter particle and because we have all this evidence that continually points to dark matter. It doesn't fit everything, but we can see the distribution in galaxies. We can see it interacting in galaxy collisions. We can see how it evolves over time. We know the clumping of galaxies agrees mm. with dark matter. So over and over and over in astrophysics, we see this evidence of some type of dark matter, but we don't have a particle for it. And this is kind of a naive question, but is there dark matter in our solar system? There is. I mean, according to the theory, there should be dark matter okay. in our solar system as well. The thing is, it interacts very, very weakly with regular matter. Okay. The attempts that have been done to try and find dark matter are basically the same type of things that we have for neutrino detectors, which are these huge vats of some type of liquid, like water, heavy water, and then completely bury them you know, in, in the bottom of, of some abandoned mine and then wait for neutrinos to come in and smack into particles. So the idea with dark matter would be the same. Dark matter is weakly interacting like the neutrino, it would go through all the material, go into the, you know, the abandoned mine and then hit these particles. And there've been some false positives that we thought might be a dark matter thing, but so far we haven't found any direct dark matter. The, um, the premier collider is the Large Hadron Collider. Are, right. are, there, are you aware of plans to build a bigger, better? There's talk about building a bigger, better. It's, it's one of those things in which people could plan different ideas to do it, but it, it really comes down to the budgets. I mean, the Large Hadron Collider, for example, is an international effort. It's kind of like the International Space Station. It requires lots of scientists and lots of countries putting in significant amount of money. I mean, this is clearly an international project, even though it's in Europe. To do bigger is going to be more expensive. Yeah, there's technology that we can upgrade, we can put in, you know, more superconducting things, but it's still going to be a massive project. And so while there are plans for it, 
as far as I know, there hasn't been any budgetary approval for anything beyond the Large Hadron Collider. And that's another thing in terms of what the LHC finds. If we find that the standard model is it, and, and the LHC doesn't find any new physics, it's going to be really hard mm-hmm. to motivate building, well, let's build a bigger one because we may find something then. You know, that's, that's going to be hard. Whereas if we find hints of something in terms of, you know, the next model beyond the standard model, then you got a motivation. I think mm-hmm. if, if the, the next run of the LHC, if it goes through and we find some tantalizingly interesting things, then I think you're going to see a lot more discussion in, in a real meaningful way about what's the next generation going to be. So when is that next run scheduled for? Uh, it's currently gearing up now. Okay. So so they are powering up. They've done some initial uh, measurements. Uh, and they've got all the detectors the, ready. Yeah, they've end. got the detectors. They've done. They did the retrofitting. You know, the, the refurbishment and everything. And then they're starting to to work at uh, double power. Let's say that the LHE discovers some hints of cool new particles and there's a decision made and an international community comes together to build a new one, does that mean the LHC is now obsolete and should be shut down or? No, not really. I mean, the thing about science is that, you know, in some ways we'll produce, we'll try and search for the big ideas, but there's also the search for for deeper ideas in different directions. So if, if you look at something like Fermilab, Fermilab is a particle accelerator that isn't as big as the Large Hadron Collider, but still does real and meaningful work. They're working on an energy level that's within their range, but they're asking the more secondary questions. You know, okay, so we know this, but then how do these particles interact? And those are things that Fermilab can address. When the the new level of the Large Hadron Collider has been built specifically to push the envelope of the highest possible energy, because we're looking at the horizon but the first person to go to the horizon, the first group to go to the horizon, is only targeted in that direction. It's not looking at the left or right. If we built something bigger than the LHC, there would still be plenty of things to look at for quite some time within the range of the LHC now. And we see this a lot with experiments that are, that are very expensive like that. You know, So if you look at the rovers on Mars, for example, there were initial first things that we wanted to do. And then, oh, wow, it survived longer than we thought. Well, now we can do these secondary things. And if we hadn't done them, you know, they wouldn't be around. So there are lower priority projects that we can always come up with that make it worthwhile to operate. Every technology, every, every advance we make is going to expand our knowledge and can be used, you know, for further research. With the increasing wealth in Asia and other parts of the world, mm-hmm. and that comes along with more science and universities going on in China and East and, and, yep. and lots of places. Are we seeing more involvement uh, in these collaborative projects? I don't know that we have as much involvement. I think it depends upon the country. Um, if I remember correctly, China tends to be more independent than other countries. So of when China built its own space station, and, and less as a participant of the International Space Station. So they decided to build their own. And they've talked about building their own particle accelerator. They're the ones, well, we're going to go to moon on our own, and we're going to go and build our own space station. We're going to build our own particle accelerator. So, so in some sense, it may not be as much as it's a collaboration as it's a competition. We have countries that we have traditionally considered to be non-players because they have been behind the kind of world superpowers of Russia and the United States and the European bloc. But that's not true anymore. 
you know, India has sent a probe to Mars, which is something that that only real world powers do. You know, it's the United States and Russia goes to Mars, and then Europe went to Mars, and then India went to Mars on the, on their own. China's gone to the moon. They send they sent a probe to the moon. The idea of big science being only the realm of of the very large superpower countries is gone. The technology is changing. The economic power of these countries has expanded. And so it's a very different ballgame. And whether whether they collaborate or compete is still something that we'll have to see how that plays out. But the idea of European-American-Russian dominance in science is gradually going away. We've been talking with Dr. Eric Williams, an Associate Professor of Sustainability at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Our program is produced at RIT by Mark Gillespie, with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Coberline. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.